welcome. This is One Life, a podcast that brings you quality content from experts in the field of psychological counseling to educate and inspire on mental health, relationships, and a fulfilling life. This is your reminder. You only get one life. Let's make it great. And welcome back to our fifth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lance Dome. For this episode, I had the opportunity to talk with Amanda Christensen, licensed marriage and family therapist, about pornography and sexual addiction. Unfortunately, it is a very big problem that is truly reaching epidemic proportions. So this is a very important topic, and I hope that this is informative and helpful for many people out there. So here it is. Enjoy. Welcome, Amanda. We're going to be talking today about pornography and sexual addiction. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very important and uh, kind of heavy topic. Yeah. I, I guess to start out with, I want to ask you um, first to, to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and why is this something that you chose to specialize in? Um, well, I'm from Marietta, Georgia, live in Utah, went to BYU for my undergrad and my master's. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Actually, I really kind of fell into this specialization, and at first I was really afraid of it, and I actually didn't like it at the beginning because um, it was hard to see change. Until you've actually seen someone get into recovery, Mm -hmm. you're kind of disbelieving that it could even be possible. Yeah. And that took a while uh, now I really love it because the change that people can make is so vast. You know, it's it's like a night and day difference when someone is truly in recovery. So it's really fulfilling as a therapist to see that change when they do the work. Yeah, that that dramatic change as opposed to small incremental change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is one thing as a therapist that there are times that I find myself I find myself wanting to go like build something or, you know, wash my car or do something that I can go from, oh, look, it's dirty. Now it's clean or it wasn't built. Now it's built. And yeah, yeah, because I don't get to see a lot of dramatic change in a very short period of time. But this is something that uh, is is incredibly life changing to Mm -hmm. to take someone from the, the, the depths of this issue all the way to sobriety do we call it sobriety and when it's not uh we'll talk about that you know the uh, i say the opposite of addiction is not sobriety but it's connection right but yes recovery is is kind of the term and you know it's really long term so right i am saying that there's this vast change but it that does it's pretty time consuming Mm -hmm. but i know it's coming yes we're working through it yes all right. Well, let's let's dive into the specifics about what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I think pornography is a term that that most people are familiar with, but honestly, I think means different things to different people. Um, so, I, I guess I'd ask you, what when you talk about pornography, what is pornography, and then also what is sexual addiction? I, I've known people. I, I've worked with sex addicts before, where they don't have to see naked pictures. They don't have to see even, you know, women bikinis or whatever. It, they, they can see someone in, in shorts or, you know, in, in completely non-revealing, right. you know, pictures that still stimulate them. Yeah. And so, would that be considered pornography as well? Yeah. Well, 
you know, pornography is definitely a what most people know of pornography is videos and pictures of mm-hmm. naked people and doing sexual things. Um, but once once you are an addict, then most everything can be pornographic to you Mm -hmm. and you're going to be lusting and objectifying about really anything and uh, your brain is just hyper sexualized right to where pornography is even happening in your own brain the way you're looking at Mm -hmm. fantasizing objectifying objectifying other people yeah yeah and then um other other ways of acting out in in sex addiction are porn masturbation getting into chat rooms sexting some voyeurism strip clubs prostitutes affairs among many other things Um, but that's those are just some examples of further acting out okay and you just you just mentioned sexual addiction what what distinguishes because just pornography use is not necessarily sexual addiction how how do you make that distinction what is sexual addiction so sexual addiction is going to be a pattern of behavior that uh, you've tried to stop probably many, many times. Mm-hmm. And despite those commitments you've made to yourself that I'm really going to stop, I'm never going to do this again, you persist in the behavior. So recognizing that there's a problem but not being able to, to stop. Right. Okay. And that behavior is going to have really negative consequences to you. And your addiction is going to worsen over time with frequency and intensity. So you're going to be acting out more or looking at more pornography, spending more money or more time doing that, having more lies and secrecy. Yeah, it's progressive Mm -hmm. in nature. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a big trap. With family relationships, obviously, that's going to hurt your marriage and... Uh, I'm even having a lot of children of addicts coming Mm -hmm. in nowadays who, you know, it it changes their whole view of of their parents and Mm -hmm. we have to work through that a lot. And even the kids feel betrayed as well. Um, There's financial consequences. Some people are spending a lot of money on prostitutes and strip clubs Mm -hmm. or chatting online and certain websites and that can feel like a huge betrayal as well. Right. You know, imagine a wife is finding out that not only is her husband cheating on her, but he's spent a hundred thousand dollars right. on that. Work consequences, you know, your performance goes down. We'll kind of talk about what addiction does to the addict emotionally and mentally, but a lot of times his performance is gonna go down and uh, sometimes if he's being really risky with his behavior, he's going to get caught and get fired. Mm-hmm. And emotional withdrawal, I mean, that's the defining characteristic of an addict because you are robbed of your capacity to be fulfilled in relationships and be a fulfilling partner. So you're absent, you're emotionally distant, and so your partner is not happy and you're absent and emotionally distant, so you're not happy. And it's my understanding that that's progressive as well. That yeah. early on, there's you can still have you know decent relationships and and connection, and then the the, the further the disease progresses, the the, the addiction progresses, the more that uh, that distance grows. Right. Yeah. Which which goes along with what you said earlier. You you called it a a, a disorder of intimacy or an mm-hmm. issue with intimacy, um, and I I like to. Um, think of pornography as sex without intimacy 
Right. Like zero connection because mm-hmm. there's not even another person there. Um, and all of the other things with sexual addiction as well, it, you know, there, there's usually not a connection with the prostitute or sometimes there is with a person that there's an affair with, but it's still, that it vastly affects our, our capacity to, to, to feel intimacy. And, and I, I think I have to preface that, that word intimacy a lot of times is used to mean just sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we talk about intimacy here, I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about the connection side, the, the closeness side, um, because you can have sex without intimacy, right. um, just as you can have a lot of intimacy without sex. Yeah. So, yes. so talk a little bit then uh, about that, the, the intimacy disorder side of things. Yeah, so every time you're engaging in sexual acting out, you're engaging in false intimacy, which is a false connection with a not a real person. Even Mm -hmm. if it is a real person, it's not a real relationship. And like you were saying, it's not intimate, it's not vulnerable or real or honest. Um, And And, and sorry to interrupt you there, but if I remember correctly, um, isn't a lot of that some of the findings are um, because of oxytocin now that that when, when you're stimulated looking at pornography acting out um, especially especially the sexual behaviors that there's that release of oxytocin which is it's a it's a brain is it a hormone or a neurotransmitter I can't remember a bonding chemical gotcha which it gives us a false feeling of bonding Mm -hmm. even when obviously we're not bonding with a computer or a prostitute or what have you but uh, yeah so it it fools our brains into thinking we're bonding and that we're getting that need met right which then that just increases your loneliness and basically you're bonding with yourself Mm. and your best friend is a screen yeah uh, or or a fake person or somebody who's chatting with you who you mm-hmm. don't even know. And and so people withdraw, they go within themselves, and they reach, reach inward instead of outward. And uh, that's why a lot, of, a lot of spouses of addicts just feel totally lonely. They don't know what's wrong, but they know you're super distant and I can't reach you. So with the loneliness, a lot of it is actually self-induced because partners are very available they're they are dying to be acknowledged right, craving and, it even yeah because they've they're missing it mm-hmm. yeah and and they're very available at, but addicts just cannot reach reach out because that would be coming out of all the shame and secrecy and mm-hmm. then someone might really know me and you know a lot of times they have a lot of core beliefs that tell them that that's not safe and not smart and you'll be rejected, so. Mm -hmm. And probably a lot of uh, justifications from that. You know, well, it'll just be worse if I tell him or her. You know, I might as well keep it a secret Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't make things, you know, worse or I don't want to hurt them or or whatever to justify it. Yeah. Yeah, so I like the image of addiction being an allergy and an obsession. Mm -hmm. And the way that's explained is kind of if you have an allergy to peanuts and the doctor says it's going to kill you, we would all think, oh, the allergy is the problem. But Mm. actually, the allergy is not the problem. Your obsession with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches is the problem. (laughs) Because if you stay away from peanut butter, there's no problem, right? Right. And it's the same thing. Sex is always going to be enticing. Pornography is always going to be there and available. And there's going to be pornographic images or the opportunity to sexually act out all the time. And you know, I would love to go after all the porn industry and all that, but really yeah. on an individual basis, the problem is your obsession with it. 
And that's what we're treating. Right. Okay. So another question, how does, how does it work? How does it come about? How does somebody get addicted to sex, to pornography? It's actually really simple because sex is a natural reward. Food is a natural reward. Sex is a natural Mm -hmm. reward. We are wired to be sexual beings and that's not a problem. That's how we were created. Right. Our our brains and our bodies uh, reward us for that Mm -hmm. activity. Yeah. (laughs) And it can be very fulfilling. Mm -hmm. But uh, your limbic system sees something triggering and your limbic system does not think things through too much. It's more looking for pleasure and avoiding pain. So and I've when, heard that the, the limbic system really just covers three things, a kind of survival, mm-hmm. um, eating, and sex. Mm. And that, that's really the only three things that it covers. Yeah, they call it the lizard brain. Yeah. And, and so you're going to see a stimulus, and your limbic system is going to determine, is this a threat or is this a benefit to me? And if it's sexual, it's probably going to think it's a benefit because that's going to feel good. And for an addict, you're going to be able to escape emotional pain. Then you're going to get a dopamine rush, which then makes you want to repeat this. You know, dopamine tells you this activity is very valuable and you should do it again and again because it feels good. I feel good right now. Norepinephrine is going to trigger and ask, where can I get more of that? And in all addictions there's a binge mechanism called delta fos b that acts with binging and craving and that's why addictions increase in Mm -hmm. intensity and frequency and then you're going to act out and like we discussed earlier after you act out you're going to get some of that bonding chemical called oxytocin Mm -hmm. the levels of that are going to be much less when you're looking at just pornography but but it's still something Enough to, to tease your brain into mm-hmm. thinking that you're connecting or, or yeah. having that same reward as if you were connecting. Yeah. Yeah. So actually the effect for of pornography is a lot like morphine, which as we know, numbs when you're when people are in a lot of pain, mm-hmm. they get morphine at the hospital. And so if you can get morphine in your real life and you're in emotional pain, your limbic system wants to go straight there. Right. So it's very enticing, especially when people are stressed out or lonely or any negative feeling that Mm -hmm. if they can cover it up with acting out this way. Yeah. yeah. So your brain creates a pathway there uh, that really takes no thinking at all. It's it's just pretty quick. This process in your brain leads to brain changes and especially with sexual addiction you're damaging the relationship center of the brain, which then inhibits you from wanting to reach out. So uh, that's a big reason why secrecy and hiding is rampant and and why you feel extra stuck. We'll talk about the addiction cycle in a little mm-hmm. bit. But some reasons why pornography is so catching is because there's a novelty of seeing something new there's always something new you can look at and the porn industry is always trying to create new things because they know that that's gonna keep you hooked you know they'll they'll create shocking things surprising things things that we would think why would that be sexually enticing at all but you know your brain is wanting more and more and more it lets up the ante somehow and porn is overly available and you know it's it, you can click a million clicks and 
never stop. Our brain never learned to limit itself Hmm. in natural rewards because it never needed to. You know, there was there were a few people to mate with and there wasn't millions of websites and millions of pictures and videos to look at. So addicts really do not know how to stop. Mm -hmm. And I've I've heard that uh, really since the advent of the smartphone, that uh, more pornography is viewed on smartphones or or mobile devices than on computers as they used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And more and more children are getting smartphones, which I, I... it's not that kids didn't look at porn in the past, but I, I think that there's that more there's more of a proliferation at earlier ages now, which the earlier you start, the more that can take you know hold of your brain. Oh, yeah, it worries me. Yeah. you know a lot of a lot of the older cli- older you know 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Super old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> clients I'm working with, their mm-hmm. first exposure was. Uh, they, you know, they found a picture of Playboy out in the woods mm-hmm. and they kept it and hid it under their bed for the next three years. Mm-hmm. And nowadays our nine-year-olds are being exposed to violent videos of pornography, right. you know, and so there's just such a difference and I don't know where that's going to lead. We will see, but it's scary. Yeah. With all this availability and novelty, your brain becomes really hyper-reactive to sexual stimuli, kind of like we talked about before, and you can start lusting, you can start sexualizing honestly anything. Mm -hmm. I had a guy once who was in recovery, and he was kind of looking back on where he had come from, and he said, I just, I can't believe it, but I sexualized everything, Mm. and he said, one time I was driving through the fr- down the freeway and I saw a billboard of like Intermountain Healthcare, mm-hmm. a hospital. And there was a girl, there was a picture of a few people and one girl was a nurse, obviously, and she was wearing scrubs, which... Not are, at all flattering. No, not cute. And uh, he, his brain instantly thought, oh my gosh, they are trying, that billboard is trying to turn me on. They're, it's so sexual, that's pornography, mm. you know? And so really just just the smallest things, if your brain is just infiltrated with that, it's going to interpret anything as possibly sexual because it's seeking for relief all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm assuming that this uh, client that you're talking about, had he'd been in his addiction for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that was when he was heavily acting out. And, and so anything was kind of sparking his interest. Mm-hmm. So you, you brought up one example of someone who is struggling with an addiction. What, what does a sex addict look like? Mm-hmm. Well, like, like I mentioned before, he's emotionally distant. So I want to clarify that addiction is, is impacting all people, males, females, and children, teenagers. So uh, in the way I talk, the, the bulk of what I see is male addicts, mm-hmm. but more and more I'm seeing a lot more female addicts, so I don't want to sound too stereotypical. Yeah, but I see it all. Yeah, yeah, the, it is, uh, it's not just a man's problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So back to your question about what an addict looks like. An addict is going to be emotionally distant, which means that you could be sitting right next to them and feel um, like they are a million miles away from you, mm. just consistently in your life. And I've heard that statement said over and over, 
Like they're there in the room, but they're really not. Yeah. Yeah. Even in therapy, they'll, they, Mm -hmm. you know, I have wives say he's right here. He's talking to us, but he's not here. Right. And, and as you're talking about this, I, I have a lot of experience um, working with um, drug and alcohol mm-hmm. abusers, and it's amazing how similar, really all addictions have, have a lot of similarity, but uh, that, that's another thing that you'll see with uh, substance addiction as well, is that, that distance and the, the disconnection as well. Right. So, yeah, I, I guess what you're saying about uh, addiction being, you know, a, a disorder of, of intimacy and connection, that, that applies to all addictions. Mm-hmm. Often an addict will act angry or critical, blaming, resentful, and be moody. And a lot of that is because they are covering up how they're really feeling. So that's that's all a mask. There's a lot of pain beneath all of that. Right. But you can't be vulnerable enough to show the softer emotions. So you're going to act like everything's your fault. I'm not doing anything wrong. What's your problem? Right. And, and that's a that's a really good point because I think that a lot of people start to think of uh, addicts as just being bad. Mm-hmm. You know, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing this awful stuff? And then when they start lying or covering up or hiding or, or not sharing, it's important to remember what you just said there that, that a lot of times it's because of their extreme guilt and shame and, and just the... the the desire to, to keep it hidden because they feel so bad about it, not because they, you know, are, are just bad and love it and, and want to keep doing it and want to keep hiding it. Although the, the addicted part of the brain, that limbic system definitely wants them to hide it, mm-hmm. but that's different than who the person is at their core and, and what their desires are. Right. And I love that you're saying that because in therapy, I really try to separate the addict from the real person. Right. And, uh, you know, if we can't do that, then the shame is just, too pervasive mm-hmm. we really have to separate that your addiction is causing you to do these things and the real you is actually quite kind and soft and right. tender and and loving and we've got to find that and I hold them really accountable you know you've got to get there I'm not I, I'm not so much like poor you you have this addiction I'm like no right. you've made made active choices to mm-hmm. get here but you know, we really do have to separate. Right. There, there's responsibility for change mm-hmm. and for behaviors, <clears throat> excuse me, but there's also the, the realization that, you know, I, I've always liked the term under the influence mm-hmm. uh, because I think that also applies to all types of addictions, even this and you know, gambling, you, you name it. Addiction influences us, how we act, how we behave. So by definition, if you're under the influence, it means you're not acting like yourself. Right. Yeah. Sometimes people ask me, how can you work with sex addicts? Because they're cheaters and they're just doing upsetting things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, yes, I hear things that are upsetting, especially being a female. I, I will hear things that are disrespectful toward women and things that make me sad. But the way I'm able to truly like my sex addicts so much is because I'm separating them from their addiction. Mm, yeah. And I'm always trying to see the goodness in them and acknowledge that it's the fear of being real that's holding them back. Absolutely. So even though sometimes they will be showing an exterior that's pretty unlikable or harsh or frustrating, uh, sometimes they're just a difficult client because maybe they're actively lying or you know they're they're not really motivated or they're act just 
relapsing over and over and over and everyone's tired of it. But if I can stick with them through that process, then they're going to change and become who they really are and who they really were before mm-hmm. this addiction took hold. Right. And I really respect their process of going from darkness to light, um, hiding to being connected. And that's a change that a lot of people don't make in their lifetime. So it's really something to be celebrated. I can see the addiction for what it is. So I can see that it's coming from a pain place. And if you look at it that way, then it's really great to work with. And that's so important to, to be able to see the addict as who they really are. Right. To be able to see past the moodiness and the, the negative behaviors we've been talking about. Yeah. So because of all that moodiness, when, when you confront an addict, they are usually going to turn it on you. Mm-hmm. So when confronted with, why are you not available lately? You know, what's going on? You seem really distant. Uh, the addict will say, what are you talking about? I'm talking to you right now. Mm -hmm. Well, you're the one that's not available. And I think at this point, it's important to point out a lot of what the the symptoms we're going to be talking about here are not always symptoms of addiction Mm -hmm. because there are plenty of of spouses that are distant and difficult to talk to and it's not an addiction issue. Totally. Um, But I I guess I just want to throw that out there because um, I I don't want people listening to this to start (laughs) diagnosing everyone with that, you know, if they're distant or or moody or any other things with, oh, they they have a sexual addiction here. I'm glad. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. So there's there in your relationship, there's going to be little lies all over the place. Things are going to be not adding up and and a lot of times uh, almost every wife I've ever worked with will say I knew something was wrong I knew something was right my, my gut was telling yep. me look for something or, or be beware yep but they've ignored their gut for you know 10 years the addict is going to be robbed of self-worth you know he's going to feel the ultimate shame and that's going to affect his self-esteem, and his confidence is going to be low, uh, truly low, but actually quite often a lot of them will act narcissistic because that's what an addiction is. It's all about me Mm -hmm. and me feeling pleasure and not really thinking about the consequences that I'm causing other people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he's going to look like a jerk, Right, but that's not necessarily what's going on inside. What's going on inside is he feels worthless and mm. and he really hates himself. So, and th- that's the sad part. That's kind of the trapped part. Um, symptoms can sometimes look like ADHD, kind of being inattentive or not really there, not mm-hmm. really listening. Social anxiety, sometimes avoiding people because if I really talk to someone, then they might somehow find out that I'm doing all these secret things. Mm -hmm. Depression, just withdrawn, down, sad. Performance and anxiety, OCD, or impulse disorder. So um, OCD is kind of that obsession kind of thought, but really it's an addiction. Mm -hmm. So physically, uh, probably a lot of people know this by now, but Erectile dysfunction is a big problem or premature ejaculation. Right. And sometimes that's what gets people into therapy is they start having physical problems like that and they decide to go in. And how about on the the, the female side? What's the equivalent that you see? For their sexual performance? 
I would assume that there would be, you know, d- difficulty with arousal, like you already mentioned, um, potentially, you know, not not being able to get turned on, not being able to lubricate that that right. type of stuff. Yeah. And, and my understanding is that that with with both of those, it's not that there's any physiological damage that's being done mm-hmm. as far as you know the 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 sexual organs still are able to to work. It's it's more the psychological side that when you get to that point, usually you're needing the the stimulation, the the extreme arousal that comes from wherever you're at at that stage of addiction, of sexual addiction, you know, whether it's, you know, I, I have to be doing a, you know, picking up a back alley prostitute to even slightly get aroused, mm-hmm. or I have to be looking at incredibly hardcore porn before I can really feel okay and, and, and start to get aroused, where, where, you know, having sex with just your partner, that's no big deal for for your brain anymore because right. everything else is so extreme. Yeah, and that speaks to the tolerance level that mm, you yeah. see in a lot of addictions. You know, just like a drug addiction, I need more and more and more, and eventually people are going to overdose and die. Right. So, yeah. Uh, the like regular sexual stimuli, stimulus, like a regular person, your your actual spouse is when you're deep in addiction, no longer doing it, but and that's not the spouse's fault. That's the addiction's fault. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you put, brought that up too, because I think more often than not, the spouse blames themselves. Mm-hmm. If I was just more attractive, better in bed, whatever, then they wouldn't have turned to this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and a lot of times they think that too, because you're going to have a decreased libido. Mm-hmm. Addicts usually stop having sex with their wives. Mm-hmm. Um Sometimes they'll stop having sex with their wives. Sometimes they'll use their wives sexually. And right. that's what we call acting in. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily acting out with other things and other people, but they're acting in because they're using their their spouse as a sexual. They're not being intimate. Right. They're, they become a, a sex toy, essentially, right. for them. And I, I'd assume there's also a lot of fantasy that goes along with it. And then yes. other more extreme sexual behaviors that would go along with that, too. Right. So a lot of addicts uh, have grown up being high achievers and people pleasers, and that's a big reason why they have a hard time coming out with what's actually going on. And as they're deep in addiction, they'll become even more, I call it, shiny, you know. Shiny. Yeah, they're very shiny. They're very impressive. And Uh. whenever I meet an addict, I instantly like him, usually. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I have to always remind myself okay he's trying to be impressive right now and to cover up yeah their shame yeah Yeah. and 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 they really need to be liked and they need to be seen as uh successful and impressive and and so but that's because really to themselves they're not impressive at all right it's counteracting that shame it sounds like and that's why a lot of addicts are the people that you would never expect Mm-hmm. I have a lot of people come in and they say, I cannot, I, li- I literally cannot believe this because everyone looks up to him. He's such a shining star. You know, he's people's hero. He does so much good in the world. And he does, you know, be- because the real him is. Right. He's still awesome. a good person. Yeah, yeah. But he's just making poor decisions, poor behaviors. Yeah. But he or she is still a good person. Yeah. So. So the addict is just not being real. Right. Not authentic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, the addict is going to be 
slippery, sneaky, and defiant. So on the surface, he's shiny, he's awesome. People love love them instantly, but really when you're in a really I've had several wives tell me I'm really afraid like they'll come in by themselves first and I'll say we need to bring in your husband and she will say I'm really afraid that you're gonna like him as much as other people like him and you're not really gonna mm-hmm. see what's going on because right and that would that, that might blind you to mm-hmm. what's really going on because the wife which is the hope I think of the the addict yeah. <laughs> that it will oh, blind yeah. you totally that I would say oh this is really not a big problem y- your wife is just being whiny right yeah um, but she's feeling all the effects of the sneakiness and the slipperiness and everyone else is like what are you talking about he's the best so so you you've covered a lot of um, what it looks like itself uh, to kind of how to identify or some identifying characteristics of sexual addiction. Um, can we move on now a little bit to, I, I've heard it talked about as uh, the, the addiction cycle that, that people go through, um, as well as there, there's a lot of inner dialogues that happen, you know, with that, that they're not outer dialogues that we don't talk mm-hmm. about as much. But uh, tell me a little bit about what what's going on with addiction, the addiction cycle, right. that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So... So you're, it's always going to start with pain and shame, which that alone at the beginning is a really unbelievable thought. Mm-hmm. You know, addicts will say, no, it starts out by me seeing this commercial on TV. But really, it starts far right. before that. Right. And so uh, pain can be anything, pain that you and I experience every day. You know, I experience some type of emotional pain every day, whether it's you know, coming here, I'm thinking I'm late, you know, (laughs) right? (laughs) and I'm a little stressed. I'm not freaking out, but I'm just a Mm. little stressed. You know, that, that is a small amount of pain in my day. And, and so just like everybody else, addicts are going to feel lonely sometimes, rejected, uh, a lot of pressure at work, anxiety, abandonment, disappointment with themselves or others, self-criticism, maybe, uh, somebody has died and they're going through a grief cycle. You know, it can be anything that you and I are going through on a day-to-day basis, which is emotional pain. But a lot of times, um, men especially are not socialized to accept that they're feeling any pain. They're like, no, I'm fine. Right. That's not pain. I'm a man. I don't feel pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and and you, you're talking a lot about the emotional pain. What about uh, other types of pain? So physical pain plays a part too a lot of addicts will relapse when they're sick you Mm. know say they have the flu or something Mm -hmm. they're going to relapse uh if they're not on top of it because their their body is like i gotta feel better they need that that uh morphine equivalent that Mm -hmm. they get through their addiction yeah yeah Hmm. so so a big part of recovery is just acknowledging that you have pain Mm -hmm. and that it's valid and that everybody has pain Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that there are healthy ways to deal with it and uh you know along with pain comes shame and that is a huge definer for a sex addict shame dialogues are going to sound like if people really knew me um, and knew what i was doing they would reject me Mm. and that's a powerful one to, to keep people silent about their addiction yeah yeah. Um, they'll think there's not enough good in me to outweigh the bad. 
and people aren't going to stick around. You know, they may say, yeah, yeah, I'm successful. I make a lot of money and I'm funny and people think I'm cool. But but if they really knew. Yeah, that's yeah. that's not good enough to outweigh all the the ickiness mm-hmm. that's in me. They're going to think that I'm not worthy of a relationship with my spouse and my kids because, um, you know, they're going to feel like I'm lying and hmm. I, I don't deserve to be with them. They're going to feel like they'll never be enough and they are their accomplishments. So uh, they may be accomplishing things on the outside, but really they're they're accomplishing hurting people and lying and being liars you know and so Mm -hmm. they're gonna feel like everything's a facade and and you know kind of like what we're saying yeah they're gonna feel like there's something inherently wrong with them that makes that makes them an addict Hmm. um a lot of times people have tried everything they can possibly think of to get out of this addiction and they haven't been successful because of they've tried to do it alone mm-hmm. um but th- but that's going to lead them to feel like there is something just inherently wrong with me and right or else i could kick this i wouldn't have yeah. an addiction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and and then with the shame they often feel like i need to hold on to this shame to make my fel- myself feel so guilty that i'll be extra motivated and if i hate myself enough then maybe i could stop doing this mm, yeah bad idea right yeah that actually just keeps them right, it would right just, there yeah perpetuates that cycle yeah so with all of this pain and shame uh most most everyone and this is where i normalize kind of the first two steps of the addiction cycle mm-hmm. nobody wants to feel that way you know i don't want right. to feel lonely or abandoned or like i'm not enough right um that's where your decision comes to deal with these emotions healthily or unhealthily. But uh, you're going to jump into preoccupation, which is basically the thought uh, that I've got to get away from this feeling. This feeling has got to stop because it really hurts. Although we are wired to reach two people, you know, when I'm in pain, I'm usually going to become a little bit more needy mm-hmm. on on my husband or on my mom or my best friend. Right. We need that connection to comfort us. Yeah. Uh, but again, like we said, the relationship center of the brain has been damaged. And so the addict is not going to think to reach out. That is literally the last thing he wants to do. And so, and and like we talked about before, men often, and women too, are socialized to suck it up and be brave and be a man or be perfect and act like everything's fine. So yeah, we're not going to be vulnerable and say, I am really struggling here. I don't know what to do. Right. Because if you need help, then that means you're weak and therefore Mm -hmm. bad and which is ridiculous. Right. You know, we, we all need help. And, and like you said, by nature, we are, we're social beings. We, we need other people to lean on, like the famous song, Lean On Me. Right. You know, that, that's just a, a normal human need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because you're kind of having that escape feeling of I've got to get away from this pain, immediately your brain is going to remember what brings uh, numbness and escape the fastest mm-hmm. and if you're a sex addict then that's going to be some version of sexual acting out mm-hmm. and so when you're in this preoccupation stage uh, 
uh, it's going to look for a sex addict. It's going to look like lust, uh, objectifying. You're going to just be noticing sexual stimuli or not even sexual stimuli. Like the billboard example Mm -hmm. you gave. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're going to start spending more time on social media. A lot of times you'll be just, just scanning through random girls profile pictures you know you don't know her and this is harmless it's not pornography but for some reason I'm just spending two hours searching through random pictures you know and that's kind of your brain is like I know I'm not supposed to look at porn but this is just a tiny bit of relief yeah. really you're you're just it's just a feeling of you're not emotionally present you're you're just like I, I say you're just kind of grabby. You're like grabbing at really anything that could take you away. Mm-hmm. So it can be sexual. It can be something else like video games or, like I said, social media or internet or TV or or just, yeah, kind of being absent. So healthy coping in this situation, like I said, I'm going to be I'm going to be in that first stage of pain and shame. And then I'm, I may go into preoccupation of I really want this feeling to go away, but healthily I can acknowledge that I'm in pain and I can allow myself to be in pain and not judge myself for feeling that way. I can challenge my shame thoughts that, you know, I really am worthy of love. I can reach out to others and then I can engage in healthy behaviors like self-care behaviors. So uh, as I was explaining this to my husband, he got a little confused like mm-hmm. well when I sometimes you know if I'm having a bad day I go on a run is that bad you know is that like I'm escaping and I say no there are healthy behaviors you can do to deal with pain and shame as long as you're acknowledging it and allowing it and being vulnerable and then yeah by all means go take a bubble bath or mm-hmm. you know it's kind of like a, a vacation from our problems instead of a, a complete dissociation from it where right. you know we aren't aren't dealing with it and we're covering it with an addiction yeah yeah so the unhealthy coping is going to look like escapism pushing the feelings away and even pretending they don't exist hiding them covering them with anger um, and pushing people away like when people come up and say hey you're not looking so good what's up no I'm fine what mm-hmm. why are you asking me you know um and just seeking pleasure in, in any way that you can. So a lot of times addicts, you know, as I describe this, this it's going to kind of sound like an active cycle, like you're deliberately choosing this. A lot of addicts aren't even aware that they are having emotional pain in the first place. Mm-hmm. So they're not necessarily thinking it through. They're not thinking, oh, I'm really going to cover up this pain now and I'm going to say I'm fine, but I'm really not fine. Sometimes it's just so automatic that they they really think they're fine and they're not fine. Um, a good example of of preoccupation and escapism is I I once had a, a man who, <coughs> he was sober, meaning he wasn't looking at porn and he was still doing sexual acting out behaviors mm-hmm. is what I found out. But, but in him, his mind, he was sober and he was good to go. But an example of the emotional escapism is, you know, he was telling me about some experience and he and his wife were in a big fight and they were in the car and they were on the way 
somewhere shopping or something I don't know and <clears throat> he got overwhelmed and he literally said stop the car she pulled over he got out of the car and ran home five miles wow yeah and I said you're still an addict dude mm -hmm. you know um you you just could not handle the conflict in the car and you literally ran away I mean it, to me it was like the most literal example of you know you can't handle this emotional mm -hmm. pain and you're feeling hurt and you're feeling attacked or whatever criticized whatever it was and you literally ran home five miles he wasn't even wearing athletic clothes mm. <laughs> you know and that's that is an example of of what makes this addiction actually quite sad to me um when i when i see the pain that people are feeling and the intense belief that they have to run away from that yeah that is it's suffering yeah 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 hmm. and it doesn't have to be that way um so once once you spend a little bit of time in preoccupation you're going to jump up into ritual and ritual is basically just the structure around priming your brain that it's going to get a reward so um you know for a drug addict uh, it's going to be like, I'm going to make some calls. I'm going to call who I know who might have drugs. And then I'm going to make a contact and make a setup location. I'm going to drive there. That whole time their brain is like, yes, yes, yes. We're mm -hmm. about to get anticipation building, something yeah. great. Yeah. And, uh, the same thing happens with a sex addict. So their ritual is going to look like, uh, you know, I'm at work. I just got triggered by something. So I'm going to leave my desk for a minute, go into the bathroom, look at pornography. Um, you know, maybe it can be even as far as I don't have any access to pornography because my wife has locked me down. And uh, so on my way home from work, I'm going to go to a McDonald's parking lot, install an internet app, look at porn, masturbate, delete the app from my phone and drive home. You know, it sounds very planned right and and that's the ritual but uh, but a lot of addicts that I talk to don't even realize that they have a ritual un until we start acknowledging it mm -hmm. and then they'll say oh my gosh I do every time I act out it's like uh, eight o'clock at night and I do this and I do this and then I search this hashtag on Instagram and then I end up at this website and or it always starts with Facebook and then it ends and then mm -hmm. it goes here and then it goes here you know and it's 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 priming the brain that whole time that that you're gonna, about to get a reward. So during this whole cycle, I, I always say that it's like a freeway and there's a lot of exits to get off, lots of exits, lots of possibilities, but the further you get down the freeway, the harder it is to ex take an exit. So um, once you're in ritual, you can, you can stop and that takes a lot of, a lot of gumption, but it's it's going to be a lot harder to stop than if you had gotten off the freeway in pre preoccupation and noticed, wow, I'm really lusting at everybody. I got to get a hold of this, and mm -hmm. I got to really reach out and do my recovery tools. So then, what happens after that? What what's next after the ritual stage? So after the ritual, you're going to jump into acting out, which is anything that's going to cross your bottom lines, which are the things we mentioned before: affairs 
porn masturbation bottom line meaning like i, I would never mm-hmm. go to this extent but then they pass that right boundary they had said yeah hmm. yeah and so throughout recovery your bottom lines are going to change and and uh you know at first it's going to be like I'm going to not do the very worst stuff. Right. I'll only look at bathing suit models. Right. Yeah. 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 And then eventually we'll, we'll heighten your bottom lines higher and higher and higher. So right after you've acted out this whole time, you've been building up, building up, building up, you act out, you feel great for, you know, 2.5 seconds or (laughs) it's actually a couple of minutes, but, uh, usually instantly afterwards the addict thinks, Oh my gosh, what have I done? Mm -hmm. I've messed up again. I'm the worst. All of that shame dialogue comes back. See, I really am the worst. I really can't be helped. I really, I'm really am worthless. Um, and usually the addict is going to go straight into secrecy and hiding. So I can't tell anybody that I just did that. And what I just did is really, um, I crossed my bottom lines in a way that I never even have, you Mm. know, because probably at this point you're increasing in frequency like we talked about. And and then I can imagine that at this point, then once you get to where you feel that shame and and you need to hide it, then it's it's going to become self-perpetuating because that's a stressor. That's Mm. that's a difficult thing to do. So it's just going to it's going to fuel that it's going to you know, perpetuate your addiction. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, exactly what you're saying is, is we say that then you're in pain and shame squared Mm -hmm. because all that pain and shame that was there before, say I'm having a bad day and I'm feeling lonely or criticized or disappointed in myself or my boss yelled at me, that still exists. I didn't actually escape it. Right. I thought I was escaping it and I thought it would go away. I just covered it up for a little while. Mm -hmm. It's still there. Plus all the shame that I just acted out again, you know, and sometimes a lot of anxiety about which is added pain, you know, that now I have to cover this up. And, and now if she finds out, I'm really going to be dead. And like, she's really going to maybe end it with me or put her foot down, you know? So, so that secrecy and hiding just perpetuates it. And, and once you feel shame, pain and shame squared, where do you want to jump straight into preoccupation? Cause you've got to get away from that feeling. Mm-hmm. That feeling is really hard and I have no one to reach out to. So I'm going to go reach in again and that's where you can see that it's just a perpetual circle. So that's a little bit about the addict. Uh, I would love to talk about the partner trauma, and we're going to do a whole other podcast on that. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's going to need a, our full attention, not yep. just a, a section of a podcast. Yeah. But obviously, the impact is going to be extreme you know and Mm -hmm. extremely painful and extremely isolating and like we talked about before a lot of women will turn on themselves uh because because the addict has blamed it on them right now partner trauma uh, from at least from what i've seen is pretty different male and female so females are going to blame themselves and feel a lot of emotion males are less showing of their emotion Mm -hmm. they're more like oh cool with it but a lot of times when I have a female addict I'm a lot of times working with a co-addict couple and so sometimes they can be a bit permission giving Mm -hmm. of the other 
but men are affected as well. They're just uh, not on the surface as much. It's harder to, harder to tell. They don't share it as much. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. And then uh, obviously that impact is going to have a huge relationship factor. You know, the marriage is going to be very fragile and um, lonely and maybe high conflict, maybe very, maybe not enough conflict. You know, some, some couples will fight a lot about it. Some couples will just completely detach from each other and live like roommates. Yeah. And this is, um, I, I see primarily couples in, in, in the work that I do. And, uh, I, I think of this be, because of the detachment, the, the lack of connection, lack of intimate connection, lack of intimacy in the relationship that whether it's coming from addiction or any other source, that alone is enough to do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. But then when you add on all the other factors, the the lying and then the, the shame and, you know, blaming and all those other things, it's just the, the compounding factors on the relationship are, are astounding. Right. And I'm excited to come back to this to, to really do it some justice because I, I want to make sure that, that uh, you know, you have a chance to, to really talk more in depth on the relationship side. Um, in the interest of time, uh, let, let's dive into the recovery side of this. That uh, Obviously, we've talked about a lot of the negative things and how hard it is and the impact that it has on the brain and on the individual and, and a little bit on, on the relationship side. Um, how, do, how do people overcome this? How do, how do people pull out of addiction? Uh, like we've been saying, you you really cannot get into recovery on your own because that addictive cycle is lonely and it doesn't work. And you addicts have tried it for years and mm-hmm. it they're coming up with no results. So and my experience has been most of the people that I've talked to that say they've gotten out of a certain addiction on their own. Usually, there's a, another co addiction that starts up. Sometimes, um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. b- because they've, yes, they've stopped the sexual acting out, but now they, you know, they're, they're spending all day playing video games or they're running every few weeks yep. to Vegas and gambling their money away or sometimes even something less obvious. Like I, I've seen people become addicted to weightlifting or, you know, long distance running or, or other things that are that still produce those endorphins and, and you know, not to the same extent, but you know, th- there's that cross addiction that, that happens. Right. Yeah. And that's because, uh, you know, yeah, they may have become sober from their drug of choice of sexual acting out, but they haven't actually learned to what I call sit in the mud, mm. the really muddy water, which mm-hmm. is I can feel really sad and that's okay. And right. I can, I can even sit down in this swamp of muddy water and I don't have to run out of the swamp. I can, I can actually really feel it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if they haven't learned that, then they're just going to jump to right. something else. And, and that goes back to something you talked about earlier. And you didn't use this exact terminology, so correct me if, if it's not exactly what you meant. But in, in a lot of ways, I think that addiction is actually the symptom. Mm-hmm. Um, the the problem is in you know the the stressors and not being able to deal with them well or you know other things around that that the addiction covers and and helps with so to speak right. um, but doesn't really help with it just it covers hides soothes masks that type of stuff so the the addiction is not really the problem it's it's a problem that's been caused by the problem right um, it's an attempted solution actually mm-hmm. but uh, just an unhealthy one so if you get rid of the addiction without solving the problem 
something else has to take its place. Yeah. And that's why actually in therapy, I'm hardly, I'm hardly talking about porn and affairs and prostitutes, you know, Mm -hmm. that that's, that's kind of the side stuff because once we've got sobriety, that's where the real work Mm -hmm. happens, which is you're allowed to feel this way and somebody didn't teach you that you were allowed to, you know, Mm -hmm. or, or they tried to teach you and you didn't believe it. And those are the, that's the really hard part of recovery is, um, changing those ingrained beliefs. Right. Which is the problem. Right. So, so back to the, the recovery process itself, what are some of the the best things that people can do to get help with, with their addiction? Um, so, so first reach out in some way. A lot of times they're not doing the reaching out themselves. Sometimes the, the spouse has dragged them into therapy mm-hmm. or sometimes they've acknowledged, wow, I really can't do this on my own. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got to come in. So, um, and I would, I would add to the therapy part of it that not all therapists can help you with an addiction. Right. Um, that it, it does take some specialized training, specialized mm-hmm. work, um, you know, and so I would highly recommend that, you know, whoever is looking for that help seeks out someone who has training in that specific addiction in general, but I, I'd say specifically the sexual addiction training, yeah. it, it, it's important. Right. Yeah. So, so therapy with a qualified therapist uh, I see both individuals and the couple mm-hmm. and, and then, uh, and I, I think that's vital yeah. uh, because at least my experience has been that the individual needs to help. But as we'll get into in a, another podcast, that that relationship damage is, is very bad, right. but also there are things that the partner of the addict are going to need to talk about, especially initially. Mm-hmm. And if they're, if there's addicted spouses there, they're going to filter a lot more and they're not going to be able to say some of the things just because they don't want to hurt their feelings. But uh, to, to be able to meet with both of them, I think, is is vital both individually and as a couple. Right. Yeah. So so and then I, I require both partners to go to 12 step groups mm-hmm. um, because both people need their own recovery. And I can guarantee if you don't go to group, you're not going to get better. I just say that first session you got to do this it's really not optional mm-hmm. um through that group they're going to get a sponsor or um an accountability partner they're mm-hmm. going to have contacts with members of their group that they can reach out to on a, literally a daily basis which they really need at the beginning right <laughs> on, on a lot of levels the there's the accountability level but also that at least in my opinion that that's the beginning of starting to connect again yeah. Uh, because there's been so much disconnection. When you have that sponsor, you have someone that is there solely to, to help you through the process, then you're, you're able to start having, a, in a lot of ways, a, a, an intimate connection again, um, not just with the, the spouse, but with all the people that are helping. Right. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to teach the wife to set boundaries. That's a huge part of the couple's recovery mm-hmm. and her recovery. And as a couple, uh, we walk through a disclosure process, which in some is, is basically a, an account of everything that's happened, ev- every place that the addiction has led you. Mm-hmm. And that way the couple has no more secrets and there's no more wondering. And then they, c- they really can then start into couple healing. Before then, the spouse is always wondering do I really know the truth? Right. What else really happened? Yeah. Um, so that disclosure process takes many months, and 
but it's really necessary. The the addict needs to talk about and be aware of his own denial mechanisms, kind of like we were talking about minimizing rationalization. There's lots of denial mechanisms and ways to rationalize your behavior. Mm-hmm. So he needs to really um, get comfortable with learning those. And, and for both people to learn their personal patterns of coping <coughs> and kind of some danger zones. We set our bottom lines and we adjust them throughout therapy. We're going to work on a lot of family of origin and trauma work. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine that trauma is highly linked with this. Yeah. That, you know, a, a large percentage of sexual addicts are going to have some kind of trauma history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got to get away from this feeling. So uh, we're going to go through how they learned those shame messages and how they were reinforced and what's perpetuating them and what's still making it hard to let go of those and what taught them to not reach out. Once we're out of the woods with constant relapse, so at the beginning of therapy, we really just need the relapses to go down because like I was talking about with the brain, that impact is severely affecting your ability to even be present Mm -hmm. in session. Um, And sometimes it affects their ability to connect with me as their therapist and absolutely their ability to connect with their their spouse or mm-hmm. people in group so um a lot of times we'll we'll create a lot of structure around just getting getting the acting out to go down so that we can actually do the emotional work that needs to be done really just remembering that recovery is going to be a very long-term process when i have a couple come in um and they're maybe at the beginning i say we're going to be working together for six months probably a year mm-hmm. maybe over a year and so buckle down yeah. and and with everything I mentioned you can see that that's going to be really time consuming mm-hmm. so I say that if you're really if you really want to get into recovery it's going to be like a part-time job so you're going to become busier and I'm going to require a lot of you but the benefits will be amazing and addicts who really get into recovery it is like drug like it's like they're high on connecting with people mm-hmm. and they can't believe it and they're like oh my goodness I've <laughs> never I've never been intimate that way yeah. I've never trusted people that yeah. way healthy highs yeah mm-hmm. yeah and th- that's the payoff that I like yeah to see yeah and then that that six months to a year that's just the beginning because recovery at least a, a lot of people look at it as re- recovery never ends mm-hmm. you know you, you don't get to a point where you can go back to it you know yeah. it's like the allergy at the beginning you know you just because you stopped eating peanuts doesn't mean that you have to stop being aware of what you're eating in case there's a peanut in right. it or that eventually you can just start having peanuts from time to time no it's still there it's an allergy and it's not gone Um, with with this it's not something that uh, that goes away ever Um, but like you said before you know if if, if you stay away from peanuts you're not having an allergic reaction so you're fine so with (laughs) this if you can stay away from it Mm -hmm. which ultimately sounds like it it goes back to that uh, how well we cope right yeah really truly changing your emotional coping yeah so. I had a, one question I wanted to ask you. I, I want to know your opinion on um, a, a lot of times, especially early on, addicts don't realize that they have a problem or don't want 
to realize that they have a problem. Sometimes there are those that don't see it as a problem. They mm-hmm. say, you know, this is just normal. This is just what people do. Um, is it worth someone's time to come into therapy to, to get help of how to cope with their spouse's addiction you know, individually if their spouse will not come in? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because the, the spouse is at least going to learn how to handle herself you know, and how to not enable it and not stand for mistreatment. And I'll, I'll teach her how to set boundaries. And, um, and you know, we're both marriage and family therapists. We really believe in systems theory, theory which is that if you change one part of the system, then the whole system will change mm-hmm. in some way. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to change your husband's addiction right you have no control over that yeah, but, but as you change there is some effect yeah um, you know and if you change for the good there's usually an effect for the good yeah and that's better than nothing right and usually i can get the husband to come in yeah the, uh, my, my experience has been that when when a spouse is coming in the other spouse that's not coming in starts to wonder what are they talking about yeah they what's wonder. going on i i need to have my say in this. and then the shininess uh-huh. they need to come I need to in. show them how great i really yep. am they need to set the record straight they're like my wife is probably bashing me i need mm-hmm. to go in there and charm her yeah and 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 then they'll they'll get into working hard so um you know with with addicts i see one of two things they either do all the work and they get into recovery and they continue in recovery or they drop out of therapy mm-hmm. you know there's really no in between uh eventually they're they're either going to feel like she's requiring too much of me she thinks i need to go to group i don't think i need to do that mm-hmm. and you know they're going to drop out or she thinks i need to tell my wife and I'm just not ready for that. So they're going to drop out. But yeah, there's really no middle ground. You do it or you don't do it. Right. You stay stuck or get better. If someone is looking for more information beyond this podcast, what are good resources, whether books or websites or uh, I'm, I'm going to throw one thing out there that I, it sounds like you know about as well, just by some of your wording earlier. Um, there's a video that I absolutely love called Pleasure Unwoven. Mm-hmm. Um, it was created uh, here in Utah, actually, um, and that is a wonderful, it, it's specifically on just, it, it's not specifically on sexual addiction, it's on addiction in general. Um, I think it's Dr. Kevin McCauley that is the one who is uh, actually, uh, who narrates it, walks around southern Utah through canyons and stuff, and pretending it's the brain, um, but it, it's one of the best videos I've seen that really clarifies what addiction is. So it's called Pleasure Unwoven. Okay. Yeah. And some other good resources are the SA Lifeline groups. Mm-hmm. So go to salifeline.com. And that's SA as in sexual addiction. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Not SA like ESS. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, look at everything on that website and find their groups and go to those groups. That's a first step. And, and then also I'm the Utah Coalition Against Pornography website. Mm-hmm. So just go to ucap.com uh, probably. Or just Google UCAP, yeah. UCAP, yeah. right? And, and what, then, what about for people who are listening elsewhere? Are there good national or international resources or just good general resources out there? Like I know for a lot of mental health disorders, I, I send people to like um, – what is it called? PsychNet, something like that. Um, the Mayo Clinic. A lot of times, will have a good, a lot of good information. Are are there other good general resources online for sexual a- addiction? Anything labeled as Sexaholics Anonymous. Gotcha. You know, because that's a worldwide 
it's it's a 12-step group okay. so and, yeah. and how about books I know for our uh, for for a lot of the local people, we have a, a high concentration of uh, LDS people here. There's a, a book written by an LDS author called um, "He Restoreth My Soul," mm. um, which is wonderful. It, it talks about the spiritual side, but also the the, the brain mechanisms, the the the, neuro, the neurology and biology of addiction. Um, it's it's fabulous, and it is on pornography addiction specifically. Yeah. Uh, for Partners of Addicts, there's one written by Real Croshaw called What to Do About Me, mm. I think it's called. Okay. And um, so there's a really good book called Sitting in a Rowboat Throwing Marbles at a Battleship. That's a great title. For Addicts. Sitting in a Rowboat Throwing Marbles at a Battleship. Yep. Okay. And I'll make sure that those are on our website. We have a, a bookstore on our website if people want to go there on redwoodfamilytherapy.com. Um, and just go to the bookstore, and uh, I'll make sure that these are listed out so that people can buy them, whether through Amazon or elsewhere. Okay. Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, being willing to, to come in and uh, record yourself and, <laughs> and talk with me. It, it's been uh, very informational for me. I really appreciate you sharing your, your knowledge and your wisdom with us. Thank you. And I'm also really excited about the next one where we can go a little bit deeper into that, that partner the, yep. the, the partner issues. Yeah, that'll be good. All right. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. Thanks. See you back here for part two. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose or treat anything. If you feel you need mental health or other medical help, please seek the services of a competent professional.